0: Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So I am very, very grateful for all of the the shares and all of the the love on the podcast recently. It's up at the highest amount of downloads for... um in all time so thank you very much for that and my way of rewarding you guys is with the amount of guests and the quality of the guests that are coming on in the next little while so I cannot thank you enough for that. So today's episode is with the amazing Mark Carl. so I've been coach, I've been following Mark for a very long time and I'm truly humbled to have Adam on. So Mark is one of the leading educators in the fitness industry and he started as a PT, started doing park sessions and then and in Sydney went out to the gym floor He's been fully qualified PT and has been working and studying under and learning off the leading industry names and has mentored off them and learned that, done seminars, done conferences, done workshops, all that kind of stuff. So he has coached some massive names in physique, aesthetics, transformations for men and women. And he has coaching programs for one-to-one with himself, he has uh, programs that he works with as well, and then he sells as well, and he recently sold 100,000 uh, of those programs, uh, so which is a massive achievement. So today's episode with Mark was an amazing episode, we talk about his background, we talk about can we build muscle and lose fat at the same time, whether you should be as a PT or a coach, should you learn to do your hours on the gym floor first before you go online, or vice versa. We also talk about, Do you what's a sign of a good session? Do we need to be sweaty or being sore? Is that a sign of a good session? We talk about breaking a plateau with the lift, particularly a squat, and how to kind of get through that. We talk about sometimes the best thing you can do is actually maintain rather than diet or a surplus, which is huge. We talk about the, the dealing with weight loss uh, plateaus as well, and how to overcome that with clients and the mentality that we take as coaches on how to work around that with clients as well. So you see it from both sides. So, Mark, I would definitely recommend to give him a follow. Click on the link in his in his in the socials on on the in the link in the bio. If you want to get a program of him, do it. If you want to DM him, do it. If you want to work with Mark, please do it as well. So, hopefully, you guys enjoy the episode, I'm Mark Carroll. Mark, how are we, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So, uh, Mark, I know I've been following you for a long time and built up the courage finally to send you the message to get you on. So. For anyone who isn't aware of who Mark Carroll is, can you kind of give us a brief background um, and your story and how you, where you are at right now? Sure. Um, long story short, I've been in the industry
1: for about 15 years now. I'm 33. So I went straight from school and became a PT and, you know, did the kind of general run of the mill in Australia where you kind of get qualified and do a bit of this, a bit of that. And no real kind of redirection for a long time. And I was doing park fitness when I started out and doing boxing and stuff. And then slowly but surely kind of gravitated towards um, working in gyms. I didn't work in gyms for the first few years, which is um, quite different or unique these days. And wow. kind of what I'm doing now wasn't really the plan of attack, that's for sure. And, yeah, just kind of one thing led to another. And um, I've just been... Um, I guess working at pretty decent gyms a fair few years ago, I was um, some big bigger some big brands of I guess the PT industry, and I was kind of head coach, head of education at different gyms, and I lectured around the world about five six years ago. I lectured doing seminars, I think in the Middle East, the UK. I did my, Manchester and Hong Kong and all those places, and. Yeah. And so I kind of built a name up from there, and I was never really doing the social media stuff. And then I got hired to um, train um, Lauren Simpson, who now is my partner. Um, I got to train Lauren, and she was, I got hired to prep her for um, her WBFF World Bikini um, show. She was second in the world at the time. And so she had a really big following on Instagram. And yeah, so I kind of trained her, and that kind of I started posting on social media and putting my knowledge out there. And she went on to win the world title. And then at one stage, I think what really got my name out there was I was training a lot of a lot of really big name women in the world. I was training. Um, I think at one stage, I think I had about five or six clients with over a million followers on Instagram, which um, was cool and. I think so I had Lauren and client called Hannah Oberg who was really big and um from Sweden um I was also training um Mel so um a, a, a cool lady called fit girl Mel so Mel was um or is Kim Kardashian's coach um so Mel was training Kim Kardashian and Kanye West at the time and so I started training Mel she was over in America and mentoring Mel and so she put me on social media a lot and that grew my account a lot and kind of really got my name out there. So I was fortunate enough to train really awesome clients who really were great at sharing kind of my profile to the world and that helped me kind of build my name up. And then, yeah, and then a couple of years ago, I kind of just left the gyms I was at after um, a few years, a fair few years of kind of lecturing and running seminars and stuff for coaches. And and that's where I kind of started my Guidebook business where I was just basically with online coaching. You can only work with so many people. It's some days back four or five years ago I was getting a hundred applicants for online coaching a day and stuff like that, and it just wasn't feasible. And I had a really, really obviously solid session rate and stuff, online coaching rate and stuff, but I was just finding majority of people who like to work with just couldn't afford my services and then you're getting people who could afford it but they weren't probably really the clients that i desperately want to work with and that's where i kind of got into the idea of just creating super super cheap products where um yeah it wasn't personalized but i was showing you like my methods that i was literally using with people and they could get for a 100th of the price of what my private online clients were um, paying and then so that way i felt like i could at least, kind of, impact people and other people around the world could use my methods because it was just wasn't feasible, obviously, to take on so many people. And then, yeah, and that led to, um, kind of really building a big business out of that, which was never the plan. I just was kind of hoping to put something out there just to have, have a few more people use my methods. And, um, yeah, as of recently, I think a couple months ago, we, we passed 100. We passed, I think in February, March, I think we hit 100,000 training programs I've sold um, in the last three years, which is pretty cool. Um, And yeah, and so it's, I like to kind of say, it's my kind of thing is, um, there's a lot of smarter guys out there than me, you know, with really fancy degrees and whatnot, and, but that's never really interested me. My thing's just always been about being the best coach in the world and that's my mindset, you know. I don't think you need crazy fancy degrees and all that. It's just been about results and, you know, I've coached world champions. I've coached some very famous people. I've coached very successful people and every which way it's just kind of been about results. And when I was at different gyms around the world, lecturing and all the people... I lecture to then produce great results. So that's kind of been my, I guess, long story, short elevator pitch of just um, yeah. So as I always say, there's a lot of smarter people out there than me and stuff, but I just don't think that's everything to being have being a great coach who delivers results. And so that's kind of been my my business model is putting things out there that will get results, not to sound like you're trying to write a science paper, try to create programs people understand and enjoy and deliver great results. And I think probably my biggest strength as a coach is I can, I can break down really quite complex things and terms and stuff like that for people to understand, to actually implement. And that's kind of what I try to do. So a lot of my programs are pretty advanced, but I make them in a really simple way to, for them to understand. So you got, Mary, who's a mum of three, and she's she understands literally how to do a wave load and or a cluster set and stuff like that, which most people you wouldn't think about doing with. But if you build up the education, give them time and stuff like that, and you can do really cool things with people if you um, educate them on the hows and the whys. And that's kind of what been, I guess, my program's about. Sorry, if that went for a long time.
0: No, you're all good, you're all good. no, you're good. I think you're doing yourself a little bit of a disservice. I think that's a unique ability to break down like the very, very complicated information and like explain it to the general population or explain it to like a five-year-old. That is generally where you fully understand something. So that I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit for that. And I was going to mention the hundred thousand because I remember seeing that and I was like, holy shit. Uh that's uh that's a big deal. So massive congrats on that. You mentioned you. there about kind of like things kind of subtly changed or kind of changed a good bit in relation to online coaching and PT. Do you think PT should be doing PT errors first before they go online or do you think it should be the the way around or what's your opinion on it?
1: Yeah. So to be really honest, like when I first started online coaching, I was at the top of my game as a coach, education, and getting incredible results with people in the world, but I was honestly – not a great online coach because it's a different world coaching people online. Like it's a lot about having great systems in place and understanding how to talk to people in a different way and being great with emailing and biofeedback, all these different stuff. So I think coaches and I and I I got into online coaching about four years ago at the gym I was at kind of forced me kind of into it when I was just happy training face to train face and, and this 50 sessions a week and then all these sessions online and it was, I feel like you have to kind of go all in one or the other to really do it well for the most part. And then if you really want to gravitate towards online, you have to do that really well and focus on that. But back to you. your question was, I think any coach, majority, pretty much everyone I know who's been really successful in the industry has started with working in the gym. Um, probably the, one, the only people I know who... A friend of mine, I'm sure you know, Lane Norton. Yeah. Um, Lane, I know he went straight to online, but you know he's got a PhD and he was a natural bodybuilder, elite level and all these stuff. So he was one of the only people I know who just kind of went straight to online coaching. But for the most part, if you're just a trainer starting out, I think experience, learning how to coach people, how to talk to people, how to cue exercises, how to – Uh, motivate how to just do all the little things well I think is just so essential and then you need to see if then um, you gravitate towards online because as we're saying I think before the call that online is not that glamorous you know like from a standpoint of pure happiness like even though I'm quite introverted like dealing with a client one-on-one in person you have a great client and you go to the gym and you have a chat and coach them it's it's really really enjoyable um some of my, I had clients for years and you, it's, they were awesome people. You've thoroughly look thoroughly forward to um, talking to them, but online it's a different world. Like as you can talk to them and I, you can email and all that stuff, but you just don't get that such a close client relationship to the most part, which I think obviously that's a way of the world now. But I think as a coach starting out, experience goes a long way and you can really practice things and learn things. And, For me, it's just, I'm I'm really big on how you communicate with people and stuff like that. That's how you get better. It's just experience. So, yeah.
0: I think that's a spot on answer because I think too many people think it is a shiny object syndrome of kind of like, this is the next big thing. Let's jump into it. And yeah, I I agree completely on that. So I know there's a lot of like a lot of questions that I kind of sent you over so we're going to try and get through majority of them anyway but they're all based on mark's content so mark has shorthand content, uh, written form of this as well on videos and stuff as well but the one that kind of comes in an awful lot on my end anyway is can we build muscle and lose fat at the same time and you broke this down brilliantly on your post so can you kind of expand on what the the answer on what the reality is yeah so this is something i've definitely
1: changed my mind on over the years before i was very much on um Well, you need calories to either, you know, fuel either goal. So calorie deficit, fat loss, calorie surplus, um, muscle building, obviously. But now that's something definitely changed my mind on seeing a lot of the research over the years that yes, you can probably build muscle in a calorie deficit, but it's just, I like to use the term, it's probably just not optimal um, to do that. There's a, there's a I guess a kind of a checklist I kind of look at for people who can potentially um, do it and do it quite well. And there's people who probably want to avoid it. People who can potentially build muscle in a calorie deficit are, are going to be people like your beginners, getting those newbie gains where they look at a weight and, you know, they grow. It's kind of just a response to training and resistance training. So, beginners, um, you're going to get people who have high body fat levels. Higher body fat levels will generally help prevent muscle protein breakdown. Um, so high body fat levels as positive is when you're dieting, um, you often see that you can really do get pretty good body composition changes with um, people with high body fat as, as they get leaner and leaner and leaner. Um, things like um, people on anabolic steroids, unfortunately, um, my market is not that. I train natural people, which is why I just do bikini and stuff like that. But if you're dealing with guys who um are on stuff, you're also basically just got elevated protein synthesis the whole time, which is going to allow you to actually build muscle. So, and then, and then I'd also look at people returning from injury. If you've had an injury, one of my friends had an ACL injury, and his one leg just shriveled up, and then he came back, and he was just doing put a lot of body fat on and he came back and it was just his legs just blew up like never before it seemed like but they'll just come back to the original size so that you kind of look at that, that muscle memory if you've had muscle before it's always easy to get it back than if you've never built it before um and then in, re- in saying that so there are other people you can kind of look at for building muscle and the people who i tend to shy away from trying to build muscle and lose fat at the same time, it's going to be more advanced athletes, more advanced clients who something you want to look at is, you know, fat loss is simple, but it can be really hard. Muscle building is quite simple, but it can be hard. So I'm a big believer in life. If you want to do something well, kind of pick something and do, do it really, really well. And just try not to do a bit of everything and get nowhere. And that's kind of the way I look at training. So if I've got my clients, we've got short windows we i want to optimize it between the next show or a a photo shoot or whatnot so i try not to to get the best of both worlds because often the best of both worlds for most people can lead to not really getting anywhere too fast at all so if you're trying to build muscle in a deficit what i always look for is to keep the deficit quite minimal i think I, i saw research the other day actually on this um once the calorie deficit seems to surpass around about 500 calorie deficit muscle building basically just drops off the potential. So keep the calorie deficit quite minimal. If you're trying to recomp um, and then things like the basics, that's where I think I've spoke yesterday about a fair bit, things like meal timing, dividing protein sources, or, um, protein servings throughout the day um, is going to be, again, more optimal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. So, yeah, so, Long story short is, yes, you can. It's probably just not an optimal place to be for most people trying to diet. If you're a beginner, yes. If you're um, high body fat, yes. Um, but if you are someone more advanced, I would always shoot for trying to optimize something. Doesn't mean like when you're in a deficit, doesn't mean my clients are not doing hyper hypertrophy, hypertrophy programs. They're always still trying to build muscle, but it's just the, the, the realistic nature of training is it's probably not going to be as optimal as fueling the body in a surplus. Um, yeah.
0: That's a super answer. And I think people will kind of potentially link in with the you said there about kind of like the, the higher calorie deficit and stuff like that, because I think when people are trying to lose weight, they want to lose as quick as possible. And people will be like, they actually forget about that the muscle and that may not have enough muscle. And they kind of go to that kind of like can go, go very gaunt, particularly if we're going to get a little bit older, it can go. Yeah. We, we and- kind of Sorry, but I think the thing is as well is that trying to
1: kind of recomp if you're going to do like a very minimal deficit. What you're kind of doing is there's nothing wrong with that, but then you also just need to understand it's going to be a slower process. Yeah. So you're not doing a deficit large enough to generate all that much fast fat loss because if you do a faster deficit, it's going to come at the cost of potentially building muscle. But then you're also not giving yourself enough calories to really optimize muscle building. So you kind of... I hate to use the term no man's land, but for a lot of it, you are kind of in no man's land where you're a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not doing either great. And for me, especially trying to build muscle, it's hard enough as it is. Um, so for me, uh, something I always think is it's people seeing results is what generally validates them and keeps them going. And if you're kind of trying to go for a bit of a recon, 10% deficit, they're not really losing or they're very, lo- very losing really, really slowly not feeling like they put putting much muscle you kind of get in that no man's land where they're not feeling like they're progressing all that much
0: yeah no bang on bang on um you talk about in one of your posts thing was like in february i think it was in relation to a good session and that it doesn't have to be sweaty or being sore because i know i hear that a lot on kind of like on when applications are kind of coming in so like, i love getting that sweaty i love being sore after work it's kind of like Is that the most optimal way to be training? Can you expand on this a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So when I started as a coach, like everyone who started, I was a terrible coach. I thought I knew everything. And, you know, my sessions was just trying to smash someone and have them like limp out of the gym after doing like a sled and their first session, they couldn't walk for days and they were so sore. And I thought I was a superstar, but in reality, I was just a dickhead um, coach and wasn't doing anything positive for them. So, we need to look at kind of like what's causing adaptations. It's like, and what's not. When it comes to, again, like one of my things I hate a lot as a coach is seeing things talk about things like getting sweaty. So, sweaty, what does sweaty mean? So, I'm sure if you're uh, over in Island, yeah? Island? Yeah. Island, I'm sure you probably don't get too sweaty in your sessions in winter in the nope. gym. Doesn't mean you're not working hard. Now, you know, I, I live here in um, the Gold Coast in Australia. Winter, it's not as much, but if you go train in Bali or Thailand where I have done before, Just walking 100 meters to the gym, you're covered in sweat. You know, So it's just going to be, sweat is going to be very much just the climate. It's not going to be necessary if you're working all that hard and is it the goal to sweat? Not really. That is not linked to necessary adaptations. Um, And then soreness. So soreness is something I talk about a lot. So DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. This is something, again, this is something I've definitely changed my mind on over the years, looking at research and some people a lot smarter than me. Um, So like guys like Chris Beardsley, who's a great researcher on hypertrophy, all kind of use the term that, you know, there's no real correlation to soreness and muscle growth. So I guess trying to keep things really simple for the audience, you know, so what kind of triggers um, hypertrophy adaptations is going to be more around that tension, mechanical tension-based stuff, which is not actually seems to be all that correlated with muscle soreness so we used to kind of i used to get taught and actually got taught when i started my in the industry you know was that the idea was that you tore down your muscle fibers to then build them back up and that's what made you sore and stuff like that and so that whole idea of that muscle damage and stuff like that and soreness being a great thing is what leads to adaptations is not doesn't seem to be the case so what we see now is more that probably the prime mechanism of growth is going to be that mechanical tension and there could be things like muscle damage and metabolic stress and things like that but from a standpoint of soreness soreness just doesn't seem to from the research standpoint correlate with an effective session so we want to look at i look at i like kind of using the term when i kind of explain this is a lot of my clients majority of my personalized clients are pro clients these days, pro bikini clients and stuff like that. Very, very advanced. And they always say that they're very, very, very rarely sore, but they get better and better and better. Or if they are sore, they're sore the first time they do a new program or a total different exercise or a different tempo or something like that or have had a layoff. So I kind of like use a term. So if my advanced clients just get better and better and better and not that sore then why do we worry about soreness i think we just have this idea in our head that wow i'm sore it must mean i train my legs effectively but i'm sure you remember yourself probably the first time you've ever ever did squats or something in the gym and the next day i made my my adductors i I had like rugby training the next couple of days and i couldn't walk the first time i ever did calves i couldn't even straighten my leg i like sprint training in high school i couldn't walk properly for like three days and you know, does that mean that that was a really effective session? You know, I had to run home the other day with Rocky, my my Husky. Um, and first time running in quite a long time and I was so sore. And does that mean, you know, I was doing anything for growth? No, sometimes it's just different stimuluses and stuff like that lead to soreness. So that's kind of my messaging to people is kind of focus on don't get kind of caught up in what you think is probably leading to adaptations because most of the time it's 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 not that.
0: I mean that's a an amazing breakdown. I think there's uh Chris Bears is incredible at breaking it down as well. Um, and I think I think too many people are kind of like, Well, I need to be sweaty to have a session or I need to be sore to have a session. Like obviously it's gonna be times as as Mark has as brilliantly said in relation to when he's changing your program or you're new to the gym, you're Going to be sore for the first couple of weeks, but you shouldn't be sore after every single session. It could be a, a thing that you're under recovering, you're not getting enough sleep, you're not getting your nutrition right, all that kind of stuff is at a play in relation to kind of actually going into kind of like linking in with kind of lifting and kind of like you talk about squats and that sort of things. In relation to kind of plateauing with a lift, I think this is where a lot of people can struggle, and, and a lot of people can also ego lift, which is which is a different beast altogether. Um, how do you and what advice would you give if someone is struggling to? particularly with their squat in relation to kind of getting past say they're stuck at say 70 kg for example what examples or techniques would you use with a client on kind of building past that block sure um all right so i always
1: try to layer (laughs) it in myself kind of level of detail i want to go um All right, so I'll try to keep it simple and I'll kind of run through a a kind of a checklist of things what I'd look at as a coach. So if someone kind of came to me and said, my squat's plateauing. Number one, as a coach, I'd look at their technique. So technique, what's going on there? So as a client, I'd have them film their lifts and send to me. So techniques off, we're always going to not be in, I guess, the most mechanically advantageous position to lift as heavy as possible. So as unsexy as it is, getting your technique correct is going to, always going to optimize the process. Then when it comes to using the squat, so whatever you want to get stronger at. So strength adaptations and high adaptations are a little bit different. If we want to get strong at something, it's probably from the research shows that you probably want to do that first in your workout. Um, high adaptations. I don't think it seems to be that imperative that you do an exercise first and Whereas strength adaptations, I mean, strength's primarily a skill or you get more neuro- neurologically efficient at it. So prioritizing what you want to get stronger at and doing it first in your workout is always kind of the first way i would go about So if I want to bring up a squat and I look at someone and they're coming to me and telling me they're not squatting and they're doing, say, their deadlifts first and then they go into a squat. Simple swap is just to prioritize a squat and have them do that first in their workout when they're fresh. Second thing is is obviously um, use rest periods your training um i train obviously my audience is predominantly women and some of them oh, i'm sure you've experienced yourself they they, they they're they not a big fans of rest periods they tend to lift heavy and they, they're weapons and i've got clients they squat 100 kilos and then after like 45 seconds they want to go again i was like no no no, no wait wait, oh, wait and um Women have a fantastic ability to recover really quickly, but I still want them to recover longer. So starting using um, rest periods for longer. And then looking at things kind of obviously, if you want to get more in the kind of nitty gritty of programming is kind of like frequency. So are you squatting once a week? Well, let's try to drive up that frequency, maybe squat twice a week or even three times a week. Squat is an exercise that can handle a fair bit more volume than say a deadlift. And I think... It being a skill, the more you can practice, get those repetitions out. So I, w- that's how like a big strategy I use a lot when I attack squats for clients. And The more advanced they get up to three times a week squatting and it doesn't mean you have to just do say one squat. I tr- tend to target a variety of squats. Where are they weak in the squat? Is it a weakness in the hips? Is it a weakness in the quad? So then I can bias certain lifts um, and then... Something else is I always also want to look at their program as a whole. So this is something I don't think kind of people look at enough is, so let's say you're squatting on a Thursday and you notice your squat's just not going up. But then if you looked at, I look at their program, they've been doing an, on the Wednesday, the day before they're doing say heavy bend of a rose oh, and then, then Tuesday they're doing heavy deadlifts. So they're fatiguing their lower back a lot. So if you're fatiguing your lower back, it's then going to impact your ability to lift as heavy as possible on your squats. So look at kind of what you're doing around your squats. What are you doing the day before? Can we have a rest day before your squats if that's what we really want to bias? Or if we want to need to do an upper body day beforehand, then can we choose, say, more vertical pulling, or if we do horizontal pulling like rows? Can we sub out a bent of a row? So with a more chest-supported seated row, things like that. So we can take off um pressure off the lower back to give it more recovery so things like that as i'm just kind of looking at sort of like a jigsaw piece and you're just kind of problem solving you start with the most obvious bang for buck um technique then exercise order do it first and then you can start getting nitty-gritty a bit more of like how often are they squatting what kind of squats looking um where are they weaken the squat and then the big thing is kind of promoting recovery around it are they having recovery the day before are they doing a lot of heavy hinges in the day in their program? So maybe we deload um training this loading the spine as heavily to give you a chance to bring up the squat i hope that was nice and simple enough
0: that makes sense Uh, yeah (laughs) it makes sense no because it is like it it can be difficult to kind of uh, break it down but in relation to kind of volume and frequency is there a sweet point or is a person dependent
1: for the squat yep Yeah, it's going to depend, like, something you look at, obviously it's a super, super advanced kind of way of looking, but you look at kind of like Olympic lifters and how often they they squat and squat and squat and squat. They're just doing crazy, crazy things. So I said I think squats, you can handle a fair bit more volume depending on the squat. But something like the other thing is I think two days a week is going to be a pretty good optimal place. And the way I think you can tolerate more training volume for a squat is a tool. Well, a strategy I use a lot is not just low barring all the time. So like a low bar squat is going to load the hips, which in turn loads the spine a bit more. So if you want to bring up the squat pattern a bit more is use a, use a high heel elevation, use a high bar squat, use um, exercises that don't place as much demand on the lower back, which in turn, I think will give you a bit more ability to push that frequency and um, a lot more. But even then, like, you know, so you often see a strategy you can also use is like say I get a client and they they say Monday they squat once a week and they squat five, six sets on Monday, and then they don't squat to next week. You can still keep that exact same amount of sets, but I think a better strategy is to break that up. So three sets Monday, three sets Thursday. I think that's a fantastic strategy um, for the majority of general population. Just that way you can just practice that skill more frequently throughout the week rather than just doing that one big chunk i think you know in the research of any kind of studying and learning languages and stuff like that shorter repeat um repeated efforts throughout the week generally lead to um better ability to absorb information and keep it than just doing that one big slog so i think that's a that's a good strategy so it's just kind of getting people away from kind of That bro split of you have to do legs all out Monday. And if you kind of start to teach people, hey, you know, you don't need to do 30 sets for Mrs. Jones, who's a mum of three and stressed out, you know, on 30 sets of quads on a Monday and start dividing the dosage a bit more, I think it's a good strategy to go.
0: I really like that analogy of kind of breaking it back down to uh, studying and that you're better to kind of chip away at it and do it more frequently than just doing massive cramming for an exam at the end of the day. I think that's the, the, the great bit of advice and sticking with kind of surpluses and not surpluses, but plateaus in relation to kind of weight loss. Because I think this is one part that I think a lot of people do struggle with. They get to a point whether they've been adherent or coherent uh, is a very different question, but in relation to kind of weight loss strategies and Plat- for plateaus, kind of, what are some of the big ones that you kind of bring in with clients for yourself, whether they be at the elite level or at the kind of like the the lower level where you were kind of working when you were doing face to face? Yeah, so weight loss plateaus
1: are an interesting one because it can be a number of things. So you always feel like a, a bit of a cunt, kind of saying this to clients, but it kind of goes back to are they actually doing the calories that you you're kind of giving them, and that's something obviously elite level you're not worrying too much about that they're normally pretty spot on but for the more general population are they are they actually doing the 1600 calories um, that you're you're giving them and stuff like that so step one is actually figuring out what's the actual true intake and stuff like that are they actually being spot on and you know tracking and not just eyeballing and stuff like that so something i'm big on is tracking, I know a lot of these days you see a lot of stuff where people are like, oh, you don't need to track and stuff like that, which I 100% agree, but I think everyone at some stage in their life should track to see how many calories there are and just really kind of visualize, visually see, hey, this is what 1,600 calories or whatever they, they need to have and it builds up that ability to understand food. So that's kind of the first step is always obviously tracking and stuff like that. Um, So I guess my strategy is whether I'm trying to, because a lot of my stuff is kind of transformation based or comp prep and stuff like that, which is still just add to transformation on a higher level. I kind of like use the term of like not playing all my cards at once. So we've got obviously, energy balance calories in calories out and we can drive in. Um, We can, we can do two things. We can, decrease calories in so you have less calories to continue creating a a negative energy balance or you can increase calorie output to again increase that energy deficit so basically number one obviously figure out what they're doing and then number two is well how long they've been dieting Um, did you get even their tde correct and all these things and so if someone's plateauing i think i'm not sure if you you see it much but people freak out like from from my business and stuff obviously working with a lot of people in mass and stuff like that people freak out when they plateau and they think oh my god my body's broken they started dieting on 1700 calories and for 7 weeks and they lost 4 kilos and now they're not losing and they freak out and they think yeah. the end calorie just doesn't work so i think it just goes back to education that hey it's normal your body through metabolic adaptation through weight loss you weigh less and now you expend less calories people understand that so again for me you Simply take away, take away. So, you can obviously either increase calorie um, cardio or decrease calories. So, nothing I do is all that exciting. It's just a really methodical approach. So, I generally like to decrease calories to a certain point before driving up calories out too much. Um, And so, I chip away, chip away, chip away until I get to a certain point. Then that's where I then increase calorie expenditure and driving up cardio and things like that. But I'm a, from a standpoint of body fat loss, obviously you've got two different people. Some people would prefer to do very low calories and no cardio. Other people would happily do much more cardio and stuff, more output to keep calories a bit higher. For me, for, I guess, your audience being a more general population, I'm a pretty big fan of more just um, calories dropping first, just because I think it's such a, a much more efficient process so you've got a busy busy mum or dad and they're working a corporate job um i've seen before i've seen firsthand that you know I've trainers the clients they had them on i think 1900 calories or something for a woman at 60 odd kilos but they didn't want to take the calories away as a coach so they kept driving up the steps so they had a, a corporate mum, and she was doing like sixteen thousand steps a day and i was like and so she left her coach and i just asked like why are you doing so many steps? And why? And she's like, I'm not even hungry. I'm going crazy with these steps. So, all we did was brought the steps down and create a much larger calorie deficit. And we just found a strategy to which worked for the client. So, again, it's there's nothing too magic when it comes to fat loss plateaus, really. So, you got three options decrease calories, increase cut calories um, out, or a simple strategy is also not that it's a, a magical magical way to generate more fat loss but when adherence starts to waver it's just give them a break so i'm a big fan of short diet breaks Um, i did a podcast the other day on diet breaks and refeeds just having giving someone a mental reprieve from dieting can be a fantastic way um, when dieting adherence levels start to struggle and motivation like that so teaching people like i'm a huge fan of you know fast results and all that stuff but i'm also a huge fan of having a break, knowing when to push it, and then also knowing that it's okay to back off. Fat loss will always be there. The gym will always be there. So having a one-week, two-week break is fine to then get back into it.
0: And what alarm bells do you kind of look okay for with clients in relation to looking that? Do they need the, 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 the diet break?
1: I guess it kind of, it will depend on the client. So if I go... If I have a client where I'm pushing more aggressive approaches, I would naturally kind of not wait too much for necessary, those alarm bells. Like if I'm pushing someone who wants a really aggressive deficit, my my approach is cool. If you want to go an aggressive deficit, then I'm going to automatically bring you up every couple of weeks. But so for someone who's a, a slower and steady approach, it's a, it, it can be a hard one because before... I guess a couple of years ago, when I started learning about diet breaks, I thought that were oh, this magical thing where you put brought someone's calories up and their metabolism was suddenly or restored and things like that. These days, you'll see that if when someone gets a lot of momentum, do you really want to break that momentum? Like just because that's it's been yeah. seven weeks, eight weeks, and that's something I think as a coach, I've made mistakes in the past. I finally got someone who has struggled for weight loss for years and after six weeks they've lost three four kilos they're in the zone and now i'm telling them they have to eat 600 calories more And they do that and all of a sudden they can't get the momentum back so i like the question that you had about alarm bells and stuff like that so before i was a little bit too like oh it's been six weeks or seven weeks i'm a bad coach if i don't break it up these days as you said by feedback it starts to feel like um with my kind of biofeedback form, obviously it's natural for things like to drop. But it's when adherence levels really start to drop or motivation, um, performance starts to drop, looking at clients' numbers. And sure, that will happen at times for certain reasons, but when it's when a number of things all happen at once, um, hunger levels, libido, things like that. It's kind of like a chain reaction. You notice it's, eh, it's a little bit, little bit, and then it really drops. And that's where you go, all right, cool. Let's give you a break. Um, and so that's the power of kind of just... <laughs> I think just kind of like a deload order regulation seeing what's actually happening and not just diet breaking to hey you have to diet break every six to eight weeks because it's looking for actually that buy bio- by feedback how is performance dropping how's that motivation levels so a question i ask is how excited are you to be in the gym oh, how do you feel during your session and when they start to just really really tank that's always Ideally, if you can can get it pre-tanking is the the way to go when you can kind of sense they're onto that next level of dropping off. That's where a diet break can do a lot of good for a client and it might seem like, hey, this is kind of
0: counterproductive, but in the long run, it actually allows them to get there. I think that's what you said there is it can feel sometimes for the client, uh, for themselves, they feel it's kind of productive. Well, I'm signing you up to lose weight. It's like, yeah, but we're also signing you up to lose weight over time so that you can keep it off. And I know that's one of the big things they're going to lead into now is sometimes it's better for you to actually maintain rather to be in a deficit or a surplus. I think an awful lot of people forget about the maintaining element of things. It's it's not sexy. It's like online coaching. It's not sexy. Uh, can you kind of expand a little, little bit more on sometimes the best thing you can do is, rather, is maintain rather than actually being in a deficit or a surplus for, for an individual?
1: Sure. So, One of the terms you always hear in life and on like shirts and slogans and all this stuff, is, if you're not growing, you're dying and all this stuff, it's like you have to be doing all these extremes in life and you're not going kamikaze on every goal and you're a bad person and whatnot. That's a cool mentality to have sometimes, but also sometimes it's cool just homeostasis can be a nice place to be for a while. Um, So with a lot of clients, something – so I'll, I'll I'll kind of use this analogy on story. Is I remember seven, eight years ago, six, seven years ago, I was getting amazing results. I was working with clients for so short term, they were getting epic results. And I remember um, I did an internship. I'm not sure if you know Luke Lehman from Muscle Nerd. Yeah, Luke on Luke on Yeah, and I remember I did an internship up in Brisbane with Luke, and I was showing him all my results, and he was like yeah, but what do they look like six months later? And I was like, what What do you mean? And Luke's like, well, yeah, they, yeah, you got great results for them, but how do they look later? Like, what are they at? And a lot of the times you don't really think of that as a young coach. Like, well, they got that before and after, cool job done. Yeah. And Luke did a great job of kind of instilling my mind and that, well, that's that's part of the job congratulations you got momentum for them but what, how are they going to be for the next few years and stuff like that and so that's where i kind of got started to learn more about reverse dieting through lane order and stuff like that and there's it's a great thing getting change and kind of momentum and losing weight and stuff like that but how do they kind of look at years to later do they keep that result you know that's in in the end are they are they going for a fast change or we want to keep them so teaching people that it's okay to just cruise where you're at and you don't always have to train insane year round it's okay to spend time at your calorie maintenance so a lot of people struggle with they finally lose weight and then they're scared to death to go back up and they think if they increase their calories they're going to put all that weight back on so if you can teach people that it's okay to spend time out of deficit maintenance. You don't need to go to a surplus. You don't need to build more. You don't even need to, in a guy, you don't always need to be trying to just crack, um, crush every pathway to growth. It's okay to spend time chilling. Um, it might not be all that exciting, but I know like, you know, with work and stuff like that, and I'm sure anyone who works a lot, it's like you get really burnt out trying to push and push and push, and you're pushing your business. And I get that a lot and stuff. And then you think, well, yeah, I think I'm driving and doing all these things, but I'm getting more stressed, more unhappy and for what cost. And sometimes you can just, you know, that's why people go on holidays and stuff like that and have a break. But, you know, and with nutrition, a lot of people then go, oh, I'm just going to go in fuck it mode and just eat shit and stuff like that. And then they put it back on. If you can just educate someone to still stay on top of their, their nutrition, but they don't have to be in an aggressive deficit or even a deficit, they can spend time at maintenance and just chill there and you often find that they feel less stressed. they start to enjoy the gym they start to feel less pressure to have to do amazing things in a short time and whatnot and i think it's just a standpoint of um you know often use the term like fat loss is not linear and stuff like that but momentum in life doesn't always have to be linear you can it's it's having control of when you want to push things and then regress things and hold things steady. It's, it, it's actually a good place to be to sometimes just slow things down to, in the end, I think often you'll actually get where you want to go in the long term. Rather than going car crash headfirst into a
0: wall. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, 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 you spoke about the likes of Luke and, and Lane and, and the amazing people you have around you. How important has that been for you to have been able to, sponge as much information off them and been able to kind of learn off kind of like the top guys for you in relation to your own learning curve and what advice would you give to someone who is potentially starting out or in their infancy in regarding their own coaching career in relation to kind of trying to learn off people who would you go to
1: yeah so i often kind of joke that you know my biggest asset in life with kind of my business and it's not kind of my knowledge it's it's of being like super super smart and all that stuff but i'm smart enough to go seek out people who are smarter than me and learn from them that's kind of of my biggest biggest asset has been resourceful and to kind of know my strengths know my weaknesses and know to go and ask for help from people who are more experienced and more knowledgeable and so that's been a real driver of any kind of success i've had is because i've Worked really hard to seek out people to learn from them. And, you know, so it's like the number of people I've learned off, and often lots of them agree with some things and contradict each other and other things and stuff like that. I've learned off many different people. But the goal of knowledge and learning is to, oh, cool, I want to learn off that person. You take what you like and take what you think is valuable yeah. and then leave the rest. The goal is not to be, you know, um, you know I'm friends of like Cassim Hansen and stuff like that and next then the goal is not to be the next Cassim. or when I was learning from Charles Pollock and the, next, the goal is just to kind of be the best I can be and as cliche as that sounds and to do that you kind of it's cool to go to someone and pick their brand on topics and it gives you confidence and you see you know what's worked for them what hasn't and what their feelings are and that it's it's quite a it's kind of a comforting thing knowing that other coaches even more advanced than you when you're younger have had struggles and changed their mind on things and had made mistakes and stuff like that so it's been very pivotal for me to interact and fortunately you know create good friendships with people like that um yeah so and still to this day you know i you know talk to people and you know sometimes a lot, a lot of my friends in the industry and stuff i don't agree with everything they say and they don't agree with everything i say but we i think we agree with most most things and then you kind of as i said take what you like and don't like and whatnot um in terms of recommendations you know guys like um Cassim hansen i'm friends with from n1 education he's excellent um my friend um, paul carter from Lifron bang is um, puts out great hypertrophy content as well. Um, Lane Norden, obviously, um, has been a big mentor of mine with nutrition and, you know, um, very, very much kind of have been a fan of kind of their their practices around nutrition and stuff like that. And back, unfortunately, um, before he died, Charles Balkan was a big influence on program design and things like that. So it's actually quite to contric- contrict um, people who had quite contradicting philosophies on around a lot of things and stuff like that say like charles poliquin like i was a huge fan of his resistance training strength training wasn't a huge fan of his nutrition approaches but then um lane super different nutrition um, protocols and stuff like that and knowledge and stuff like that so you go to a coach you don't need to bow down to them on everything everything they do i was like cool I love charles's training i didn't really agree with his nutrition stuff so i went to a different um resource for nutrition and then and whatnot and that's kind of the way i've always kind of gone about it it's just kind of like just leveling up taking a little bit from this person a little bit of that person um so yeah so i never was a big i never went did the fancy uni degree and all that my money has been spent on internships around the world um one of the best internships i did i went to LA, I went to see. I'm not sure if you know Stefan um from Kilo. I did a five-day private internship with Stefan over in Huntington Beach four, or five years ago, which was really valuable. Things like that. So I did um internship in Germany with Wolfgang Unsold, a strength coach there who was amazing and stuff like that. So being Australia, it's tr- literally, you know, traveling to the other side of the world to go learn has kind of been what's really driven me. And yeah, so that's kind of, kind of where I'm at. So all those kind of guys, um are all excellent resources and i don't think coaches these days realize how lucky they are because majority of the stuff you see on social media that just used to used to pay thousands of dollars just to get that information and travel around the world now they're literally just doing it for free on an instagram post um so yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's crazy times i think people are very fortunate and i don't think they realize just how much great content there is from good people out there these days
0: i think that's an amazing point to kind of finish up on i think there is so much information being put out there so much amazing there's also a lot of shit out there don't get me wrong but the people that uh mark has spoken about are the the ones who are at the top of the game so mark i cannot thank you enough for giving up so much of your time for having a chat and where can people find out about yourself where can people find out about your programs the podcast and everything else about you
1: sure um my Instagram guys is Coach Mark Carroll, and I've also got a new—that's where all my programs are—and then I've also got an education um, business. I just started with my brother Glenn at Carroll Performance, which is program design, and we um, also qualify coaches now around the world. So, a few different things there. Got the new podcast just started. Took me about fifteen years to work up the courage to start a podcast, which it's been an interesting
0: experience. Um, so, yeah, that's just the Coach Mark Carroll podcast. Amazing, Mark. Can't can't thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing so much knowledge. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, guys.